The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com Extended Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended. And we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program, outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. Uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I had the pleasure to sit down with Ian Sexton, a 99-year-old veteran of the Royal New Zealand Air Force. For most of the war, Ian was a radar mechanic, working on top-secret radar installations around New Zealand and up in the Pacific. And then late in the war... He retrained as a pilot. My thanks to Paul Radley and Bevan Dews who assisted with this episode and who were present when we recorded this. So um, I always start at the beginning 
asking uh, your full name and your date of birth and uh, the rank that you got to. Ian Monroe Sexton, date of birth, 2nd of July 1920. Wow. So about three and a half months away from my century. It's <laughs> amazing, yeah. <laughs> amazing. Mm. Uh, and, and where were you born? And Whereabouts were you born? In Auckland. In Auckland, yeah. And uh, what rank did you get to? Sergeant. Sergeant, okay. Mm. Did you grew up in Auckland? Yes. Yep. Oh, Manurewa. We lived in Manurewa when I was a boy. Okay. Mm. Did you have much aviation around you uh, as a child? Did you go to the airport or anything like that? No. No, I've got a vague recollection of seeing a plane flying over. I mean, it couldn't have been more than six or seven. You must have been pretty low. I remember waving to the pilot and pilot waved back. <laughs> Great stuff for a six or seven year old. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, um, what were you doing bef before the war? What What were you doing leading up to the war? I was a schoolboy most of the time, and then my father had a block of land. I have a twin, had a twin brother. He put us on there when we left secondary school. And uh, <clears throat> war broke out. I can remember Neville Chamberlain's coming on the BBC. BBC news broadcasts were coming through very well at the time. Mm -hmm. And Neville Chamberlain came on 11am GMT, the 3rd of September, 1939, 10.30pm here. Britain has now declared war on Germany and a bit of a ramble. Mickey Savage came on straight after, where Britain goes, we go. <laughs> yep, yep. And uh, were you keen to join up at that time? Were you keen to get involved? Not particularly, really, but uh, I knew it had to come. I was, 19 by then. And did you choose the Air Force? Um, or, you know, were you called up for Army or...? I was called up for the Army and medically examined. But uh, before, I think it was before that, uh, the um, <coughs> post office carried out a recruiting campaign among people who had some radio knowledge and I put my name forward for that and then in between I was called up for the army then I called up for the air force right so the air force was a definite um, date report to Harewood 31st of October 1941 Okay. So then I went. Right. And where did your um, interest in radio come from? I think it originated really from a, a book I picked up at random in the school library. It seemed to excite my interest. And uh, I became interested in the technicalities. Uh, were you um, sort of an amateur builder of 
wireless or um, well I started off like most schoolboys making up a crystal set and yeah. then you had hold the valve or two and made one or two val one valve sets and sort of progressed as you learnt a bit more right okay uh, and this is obviously valuable to the Air Force. They were using radios, so yes, um, you were selected as a radio mechanic. Yeah, well, wireless mechanic yep. first. Then we completed the wireless mechanic course, training course, which is a good basic theory course. And then they called for volunteers for special work. They couldn't tell us what it was. So I put my name forward and you know, I went okay. into radar. Highly secret at the time. Right. Okay. And so that was just at the completion of your wireless training, was it? You, you didn't do any squadron work in between? No. You're right. No. Um, so once you started, once you got into the radar and it was highly secret, I suppose you weren't allowed to tell anybody what you were doing? No, it's... We had to sign a declaration under the Official Secrets Act. Okay. And what did the training involve? Where, where did you go and what did you do? Electrical and wireless school at Wigram. Okay. That was the, uh, the basic training school. As far as radar training was concerned, <clears throat> an instructor gave us a brief few weeks course but he didn't know much about it himself, neither did anybody else. We were largely self-taught. The equipment I went on to had a very good um, technical manual and I put considerable time and effort into sorting that up. I learned a lot from that. And then you put what you've learned from the book into practice you learn a lot more. Of course, yeah. yeah. So how long were you uh, in that training uh, phase? How long did it take to get up to proficient speed? The basic course, that was about 12 or 14 weeks, something like that. I can't remember exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> and so at that stage, um, uh, the Japanese had entered the war, I guess, when you were training in wireless? Oh, yeah. Uh, with um, radar, sorry. Yes. Uh, we did a six weeks introductory courses, which was then Harewood uh, RNZAF station. Mm -hmm. I remember it very clearly at the beginning of the six weeks on Monday of the last week at uh, lunchtime. We'd had our lunch got back to the dormitory, the fella turned his radio on to, to hear the news, and he had it turned down, and the, this news came through about the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and he wound the volume up, and we all gathered around and <laughs> made remarks, which we won't record. So when, when you um, were a qualified radar operator, where did you go next? Radar mechanic. Mechanic, sorry, yeah. Mm. Where did you go next with, uh, in your job? We were sent up to Winoopai. Uh, there's a station being built at Piha at the time. 
there's problems with the equipment and we were just held at Renault Pai waiting for the that equipment to be operational mm -hmm. okay. about six weeks I think yeah. and then you eventually got to Piha? yes yeah, about August August 42 okay and what was that what was Piha like how many people were there and what sort of equipment did you have about 25 I think and it, it was English radar equipment there was a move to make uh, build radar equipment in New Zealand in fact quite a lot was built but it wasn't suitable for the long-range air warning and they'd been able to buy I think about 20 sets from England and they just arrived this was the first one okay. being taken into use now, did it have those big towers like you see in the the Battle of Britain radar, the the big chain home towers? No, that was CH equipment. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> is it, there'll be a picture here somewhere. Okay. Yep. I might find it. Ah, yes. That's the story. Published fairly recently right. by Sandra Coney, based on, uh, she's interested in all the West Coast and, and uh, so on, history, and uh, she's put that out fairly recently. Right. I had quite, a, quite an input to that. Okay. There's a photo there somewhere, if we can come across it. If what is the aerial towers? Yes. Yeah. That's that's the British one. Oh, British yeah. one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is this is what you had, is it? Similar, not quite the same. Okay. Mm. Okay. So the radar that you were. Um, that you were operating or, or working on uh, at this unit, um, was it looking for aircraft or was it looking for ships or both? Both. Both, okay. But the range on ships, it is designed to look up a very narrow beam. And uh, <clears throat> yes, we'd plot any ships within range, but we didn't have a lot of range on them. Okay, okay. So if you saw any ships on it, they'd be quite close to, to the coast? Yes. Yep. Yes, we plot them going in and out of the, uh, the Manukau Bar, Manukau Harbour. Yep. That's a picture of the receiver, what was known as the receiver. Yep. All the display circuits were in there, the two cathode ray tubes that one was the range tube and uh, this one was the PPI standing for plan position indicator okay now that had a uh, it had a, a base which rotated in synchronization with the aerial and the if you got a plot it, it was uh, the, the 
thing brightened if a plot came through. And you could put a map on that, and you, this, this would show on right where it was on the map. Oh, right, okay. Yep. And if you spotted something, would you have uh, a reference to look up whether, you, whether it was a known ship or a known aircraft? or? We would report it to uh, the Northern Group Headquarters, which was at the Auckland Teachers Training College. And they, they had a, it was a combined headquarters, and I think all ship movements had to report it to be reported to them. Okay. So they could identify. Right. Twenty-two. Wow. <laughs> That's you, is it? Yeah. Mm. That's you. Yeah. Mm. Age for twenty-two. Mm. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. So how often did you see anything that didn't seem to be something that should be there? I mean, did you did you ever see anything that was suspected as enemy? Not not there. Okay. Although one episode I remember, one of the Tasman Empire Airways planes was having trouble, and. Uh, it was supposed to be about 20 miles out and our chief from Wanoopai rang up and, and he was insisting it was about 20 miles out and things got a bit heated. I was on the, on the phone, things got a bit heated and I said, well, it's only 20 miles out, it must be down in the drink and the roars came down the phone. Just at that instant, the fellow on the Range tube picked up a plot at 60 miles. Oh, right. uh, that was it coming in. Yep. And it got over. I was instructed to go out and make a verbal uh, um, re report on it. It got over the Waitakere Ranges and landed safely. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Sitting on foundation blocks for the generating engines. Right. We had to brew our own power. Yes. Too far to put power lines in there. The materials and men weren't available. So what sort of power was being made there? What? I generated 230 AC. Oh, yeah. yeah. What were the living conditions like for you guys out there? Oh, pretty good, really. Uh, we get around uh, dressed almost any way we liked and uh, the food varied depending on the cook. Some of the cooks uh, weren't very good, yeah. some of them were quite good. Okay. So it, uh, living conditions were uh, reasonably good. Uh, did the personnel uh, rotate in and out um, or did you stay there the whole time? Um, uh, we stayed there. For, we might. Be, I was moved on up to a new unit on Monterey Bluff, north of Dogerville, after about three months. But you'd stay there and uh, for that length of time. Okay. Yep. The buildings. Oh, there's 
That's a sort of aerial. Oh, yeah, yep. It's pretty massive affair. The thumping big um, turning motor. Yep. It turned about five or six revolutions a minute. Mm-hmm. And gave a, it was very well designed, gave a very narrow beam this way, that is like this the other way. Okay. And that was rotating continuously. Okay. And so you would be tracking, if there were, for example, uh, Hudson's or Kitty Hawks or anything coming down from the Pacific, you'd be tracking them coming in? As oh, well. yes. Mm. Yep. Mm. And just making sure they were safe and in the right place? We, we tracked them in. The, I reckon the, uh, we tracked all sorts of planes in when the Yanks were here. The, a lot of transport planes coming in, quite common for them to get lost. And I reckon we about 30 transport planes were saved from a watery grave by the radar, various radar installations. Okay. There's Piha, Monganui Bluff, right on the very north cape, another one on the east, uh, down the east coast. Another one out on Mokohinao Island. Another one at Hotwater Beach, where they didn't see very much. That is just the northern ones. There's a whole system planned out. It must have been planned out. (coughs) Might have been early in the war, perhaps pre-war, that the um, the um, where they'd all go and so on. But. uh, a lot of them weren't built, the southern ones were never built. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. So you went to Manganui Bluff, and how long were you there for? About three months. Okay. And then we got a, there's an arrangement made uh, between the Yanks and the New Zealand government. <coughs> they were getting a bit of a plastering on a Guadalcanal with night bombing. Mm-hmm. So the the arrangement was the Yanks would supply some night fighters and we would supply the radar. So that it was in the, the services language panic stations <laughs> and the, the phone rang one day and I and several others had to get on the train and head down to Palmerston North. And uh, oh, a bit of a long story, but we ended up finding this place. It, just, it was just a flat paddock yeah. and some tents had been put up. And, and um, there wasn't much of a cookhouse at first, but uh, we set up the equipment in the paddock, tested it, got it going. Then we packed it all up to shipped up to Grata Canal. I was fortunate I flew up with some of them, some of them with the Yank uh, C-47, the main body of the, of the, uh, the, um, the crew had a very hot and uncountable trip in a ship, February, hottest time of the year. Then we had to get to work, firstly they had to find a suitable site and that was found a large flat plain on the, the northern side of the island of 
Guadalcanal, covered in kunai grass, which is a very coarse grass, grew up that, that high, but it, it was flat, which is just what we wanted. And a uh, lot of work, the sea bees, yank sea bees, put down concrete foundations. We had to go get to work and erect prefab huts on these foundations and then get to work and install the equipment. By that time I knew more about it than anybody else on the whole thing. I had to do the most complicated part of it all the setting up adjustments to, to get it going. I was always called on to, <clears throat> to fix faults and answer questions. And I was the key technical man. Right. Yeah. Okay. And how many of you went up and, uh, with that group? There'd be about 50, 45 or 50. Okay. And, and once you got all established and um, started operations there, um, did that make a difference to the, you know, with the night fighters taking down the bombers? Were they oh, yes. much more effective? Mm. Yes, that unit was a GCI unit. GCI standing for Ground Controlled Interception. Mm -hmm. And we had uh, fellows who were pilots who no, no longer flew. They were the controllers, they would use the information on the radar to direct the fighters. We'd have the, this is night time, they just single planes, nuisance raids, but they did some damage at times. And the controller would use that information to direct the fighter onto the bomber's tail. Well, the Japs, they weren't, weren't a pack of idiots. They must have had somebody who could understand English at their base. Our radio transmissions were strong enough to be heard at their base, wherever it was, and it didn't take them long to work out just what was happening. <coughs> and they told me to the fact that if they listened to our radio frequency, when they heard a transmission on that, the fighter was being given an instruction. Yeah. Soon as they heard that, they'd alter course. The fighter get another instruction, they'd alter course again. It's in, in that. Yeah. They could only stay in the area for about 25 minutes. It kept them dodging the fighter, 25 minutes, they had to head home, or they wouldn't get home. Right. And that was 100% effective oh, wow. in preventing the night bombing of Henderson Field, which is the, the name given to the big yank base there. Yeah. So the night fighters weren't actually shooting them down, but they were, they, they were sort of chasing the, them away. There were only a couple actually shot down, but mostly... They were just um, keeping them busy, dodging the fighter. Yeah. And while they were doing that, they weren't bobbing their target. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's the transmitter. Oh, yeah, gosh. Oh, yeah. We've weighed about a ton. 
A lot of valves in there. Yeah. yeah there's a lot of heat. Yeah. Yes, highly specialised valves. They have to they are forced air cooled. <coughs> mm. The first thing that came on was the motor that drove the fan. And there's in the air out that there's a, a flap switch and it, when it was as long as the, the fan was going, the flap was held up. If the fan stopped, the flap would drop and switch the whole thing off. Mm. Right. Otherwise, the, there's some peculiar arrangement with the glass bonding to metal. If they weren't cooled properly, the glass would melt. Oh, wow. Gosh. So it was really hot in there? They ran hot. Mm. Yeah. Was it noisy as well to run the equipment? And was it very noisy, the, the equipment? The fan was fairly noisy, but apart from that, no. Okay. <clears throat> so you guys got to Guadalcanal in February 43, and shortly afterwards, I think two months later, or a month later, the, uh, our first fighter squadrons got up there, or squadron. Did you have anything to do with those guys? Did you ever mix with them, or...? see them around or? Um, <clears throat> First Air Force planes went up there about November 42. They were the <clears throat> Hudson's of course, yeah. Hudson's. Yep. <clears throat> now we didn't directly control the day fighters. The Yanks wouldn't let us. Oh. They didn't want the, the crews to know it was us providing the information where we, uh, for day, uh, uh, day fighters, we had to talk to the fighter base, the control base, which had the code name Recon, and we'd be listening to them. Immediately, they'd pass on what we told them. <laughs> the first major raid was April the 7th, 1943. I remember it very well. I was in the, the range, range tube seat and we picked up, we got warnings in the morning from the coast watchers. You know what coast watchers were? Yep, yep. Warnings came from then. A lot of air activity. We'd, we could expect a raid. It came. <clears throat> <clears throat> we picked it up at maximum range of a hundred miles and tracked them all the way in. The fighters went up, the heavy planes had been flown off. The fighters went up uh, when the raid was about 40 miles out. Once they joined battle, we couldn't help them much. There's such a mess on the tubes. <laughs> On that raid, the uh, New Zealand ship Moa was sunk in that raid. And the official history records that the Yanks lost seven planes, the Japs lost 33. Yeah. Next raid is, must have been about May, I think. And they lost, the Japs lost more planes. And uh, I'm not sure 
I think there was a third raid when most of the Japs were shut down. After that, the Japs were being pushed back and there were no more raids on practically all. Okay. <clears throat> now, when you guys first got there uh, to Guadalcanal, was there still Japanese around in the jungles there, around you guys? They did. They declared it was free of Japs about the time we got there. Right. There would have been a few roaming around, but we, we didn't didn't have any bother with them. Right, okay. They'd been taken off. The Japs, they knew ships were coming in at night to the northwestern tip of the island. They thought they were bringing troops in, but then they tumbled to the fact they were taking survivors out at heavy losses from disease and starvation. After that, there's no more trouble. That's the first island that the Yanks chased the Jap out of. So how long were you at Guadalcanal then, personally? I think it was about five months. That I, <clears throat> we'd been instructed when we first, first re reliefs arrived, one mech and three operators were to be sent back to um, form a nucleus for the next unit going up. But it, it was hopelessly bungled. Uh, the medical fellows gave us what was supposed to be an anti-malarial treatment, which the Yank had already found was useless. And one of them said to me, we've got to find out ourselves, and they let I don't know how many fellows get sick before they found out. I tried to tell them, but of course they didn't listen to me. And apart from that, <clears throat> the radar chief, he given this instruction, when we got back, he found, we found he scattered us around the units that were most difficult of access. He had the new unit uh, that was formed of completely inexperienced people. It, it was badly bungled and it didn't perform very well. Okay. So, where was that unit meant to be going to? Further up? To New Georgia. Oh, yep. Yeah. Next, next one is New Georgia, near Munda. Right, right. So, did you come home to do the, to the, that, or did you just come back down to Guadalcanal, or... Ah, oh, sorry, to... No, uh, no, this is back in New Zealand. Back in New Zealand, oh, mm. right. Yes, I went down with a good dose of malaria. Cutted off to the hospital with my temperature way up in the danger area. I was in good health normally and made it reasonably tough stuff. I got, a, got over it all right. Yeah. But then I was held in New Zealand for must be about eight or nine months, I think. By that time, the Japs had been pushed back and they were starting to close down the New Zealand radar units, ah, right. and uh, I'd been carrying along, I'd been the chief technical man everywhere I'd been, 
carrying along fellas who were supposed to be technical officers when they were about as technical as the cat. There's <laughs> <laughs> an opportunity to transfer to air crew. And I, I took that. If I'd known how long the course was going to be, I wouldn't have gone into it. But once I was in it, I was in it and ended up getting my wings on Harvard's. Oh, right. Oh, wow. Okay. Spent the last month of the war wasting time at, at Ardmore. Were you hoping to become a fighter pilot? Well, I was trained up to that level. Yeah. I was ready to go to ATU, Operational, operational Training Unit. Yep. Okay. But the uh, the war was just about over, and they, they knew we weren't going to be wanted. Why they didn't chase us straight out to out to a reserve of some sort? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> Did you enjoy flying though? Oh yes, it was good to learn to, to fly a plane. Yep. And for about 30 years I had the time, energy or money to do any flying. Then I, it was associated with the bloke in the town here. <coughs> you know, there's a small flying group up by the old, the, the old church up Brookie East. Oh, yes, yeah. He is associated with that and took me up and I decided I'd join. So I inquired about it and I had to sit the civil aviation exams. A lot of it was what I'd learnt years earlier and do enough flying to get me back to, uh, to the PPL level. So I flew there for about 22 years and just about carried us along single-handed at one stage. It was near fizzling out. Then oh, right. <clears throat> Murray Reed came in. Do you know Murray Reed? No. No, he's an Air, um, Air New Zealand pilot. No. Now he came in, and of course he knew a lot of flying men. He brought a lot of new fellows in. Mm. And the old plane was getting a bit tired by then. And one meeting we had, we decided we'd buy a new plane and put up some money, put up the benches. And one fellow <coughs> let it off, pulled out his wallet, pulled out five $100 notes and put them on the table. That's his debenture to buy a new plane. So a lot of them put up $500 each. He bought another plane. It went well for a while, and then we had a trouble to develop. And well, I think everything that could go wrong went wrong with it. And cracked cylinders, and Lord knows what not. Yeah. Uh, they, they had a, quite a bit of trouble, as you get with a light plane, mm. but it, it just had some work done on it. It's in good order now. So the group's still going? Oh, yes. Oh, right. Mm. Okay. What, what, are, what are the aeroplanes? What type? Cessna 172. Oh, okay. Yeah. A good strip plane. Mm. Okay. Several of them said, well, I'll take you up one day, but they seem to forget about it. Huh? <laughs> <laughs>
And I believe you're still involved with uh, with the radio side, with ham radio. Oh yes. Yeah. Mm. Yes. <clears throat> I uh, started up the uh, textbook, radio textbook, very common. I started that up and sat the amateur operators exam in August 1939 and got a letter on Friday the 1st of September telling me I'd passed the exam. Sunday war was declared and radio was immediately banned. <laughs> I didn't actually get it on the air till 1946. Oh, right. mm. That I've had to call ZL1 Papa Zulu ever since still hold it. Okay. Tell me about your books that you've written. Well, I compiled it yep. rather than compiling it means you um, compile the stories of, of um, individuals. Right, yes, yep. And there's about 50 contributors and I've got the the individual stories. We had a we had a, an organisation we called the Radar Reunion Organisation. It was an incorporated society. Mm -hmm. I knew the secretary had some stories. He's doing nothing with them. So I took the bull by the horns and and I got those, I wrote to as many as I could locate, yeah. got 100% cooperation from quite a lot of them, Excellent. nil from others, yeah. <laughs> the way it goes. Some of these stories are just as the uh, contributors wrote them, some I had to rewrite and yep. correct quite a bit. Yeah. But that's as near as you'll get to a history of the Air Force ground radar. That's the only publication okay. that deals with it. Right. So there was no ever there was never any official history done, it was just your history. there's mention of it in the official history, but it's it's not um, doesn't go into much detail. Right, yeah, yeah. Well it's good that you did this then when mm. when they were all still around to do it. Yes, they are starting to fall by the wayside then. Mm. Practically all of them gone now. Yeah. I don't know any survivors. There's probably one or two, but no. yeah, before Pearl Harbor, a lot of <clears throat> a lot of the trainees went to England. Mm. But after Pearl Harbor, the immediate change. Okay. Most of them were kept here. Okay. Some were sent. Uh, no operators were sent. They're all radar mechanics that went to England. Right. Okay. They had their own uh, operators in England. Many of them were WAFs, Women's, Women's Auxiliary Air Force. Yeah. We had some of them here too. Yeah. They, they were mostly pretty good. They, you didn't get the brainless sort of people <laughs> doing that sort of thing. They were pretty sensible lot and 
the conscientious and good at it. Yeah, good. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Very interesting. Have we covered it all? Or is there anything that we've missed out? No, I don't think so, really. Yeah. I have radio experience. I, um, at one stage, as I mentioned in that, uh, that story I gave, uh, at the time, there's a lot of war surplus radio equipment available. Yep. All the transmitting valves, which you couldn't normally get here, <clears throat> they're being sold off at a small fraction of their normal price. Yep. Well, I bought some of them and built up a transmitter, ran about four times the power we were supposed to be yeah. using. <laughs> On the farm, you'd put up good aerials. And I quite really, quite um, literally, just talked around the world. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Propagation conditions were good at the time. And uh, it just literally, I talked around the world. Yeah, that's fantastic. These days, we can do it just with one of these in our pocket, of course. But mm. you know, so the young people wouldn't understand it. But yeah, I know what you're saying. But being mm. able to talk to someone on the other side of the world like that would have been pretty neat. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I can remember some of the major uh, war um, activities. The uh, Dunkirk mm -hmm. and um, this Churchill's famous uh, speech. What are, you, what are they going to do to the Nazis? Mm. I the words are, somehow I remember them. If the Nazi hordes seek to invade our land, we will fight them on the beaches and the landing fields. We'll fight them on the streets and the hills. We will never surrender. Yeah. <laughs> There's a film about it fairly recently. Yeah. This is a speech in the House of Commons. They all cheered him. They waved their papers, which is a sign of approval in the House of Commons. Mm. Oh, yes. There's a fellow in the, in living here now. Uh, his, he was too young to see any war service. But his story was every able-bodied man who could carry a gun would be there shooting at the Jerry's if they arrived. But they never arrived. They were gathering up uh, boats in the French ports. That was after Fr France had surrendered. <clears throat> they made good targets for the RAF. RAF wrecked most of them. And they would have had the Luftwaffe would have had had to have control of the channel mm, mm. for an invasion to succeed, yeah. and they never had it. They never did. Mm. Mm. I can remember uh, at the end of the war, an aeroplane flying over Christchurch, dropping pamphlets mm -hmm. to say that the war was finished. Mm -hmm. And my brother and I are running around the street, collecting these up like pennies from heaven. We, don't I don't think we that. quite realised what they were, but uh, but something coming from the sky was valuable. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I was rigorous at the time, and uh, I think we, news came through about midday on the day. Uh, I think we'd given the afternoon off, and we all went into the city. I remember 
dancing in the square with my Christchurch girlfriend at the time. And then uh, the um, um, victory of the Jap VJ Day, I was at uh, Ardmore. We had, I had fairly extended leave and then uh, out. Yeah, mm. that's great. Mm. One of the things that Bevan was wondering, uh, on these radar units, um, when you were on your downtime, what what sort of things did you get, guys get up to just for social social life, that sort of thing? Um, and did you get up to any hijinks or anything like that? Um, not a lot, really. We were on shift work. They, they ran around the clock, shift working a different shift every day, yep. which is quite tiring, really. Yep. Um, well, I think there's a table tennis um, um, table to... Um, wasn't much in the way of recreation, really. Books and papers and... Play any pranks on other units or groups? And did you play any plank, uh, pranks on other units or groups? No, we didn't. But it did happen on one occasion. The uh, <laughs> the, the fellas, I wasn't there, but the story went around. Fellas up at Dagerville, they bought some French letters from the chemist, and they. They made hydrogen somehow or other, <laughs> filled them up with hydrogen. <laughs> then they tied little bits of wire to them that would reflect the radar. Left <laughs> 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 them floating around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there were some hijinks. Mm. Yeah. Some, mm. Yes, I'll bet. Yeah, Bunch so of healthy young guys. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Did it actually set off a panic when someone saw that on the radar screen, or...? I don't, I don't remember. I, I wasn't there then. I, I was just, when I was on Radisson Hill. Right, right. It would have been funny if the, the fighters had been scrambled to see what it was. <laughs> I think there were twice Jap planes flew over Auckland. Jap planes from submarines. Mm. Yep. And at the end of five at Dagerville, we plotted, I'm sure to this day, it was a submarine. Mm. One rotation of the aerial, nothing there. And the next time, there it was, quite a strong echo. And we tracked that, I remember, uh, I think about seven and a half miles in 50 minutes, which gives us a speed of nine knots. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> the uh, headquarters fellows didn't want to know about it. They insisted there was nothing there. Well, I insisted there was. It was about three hours before they sent a Hudson out to search the area. Mm. And the Hudson fellows were told to search where we had plotted it. It had been travelling at night knots. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Nothing was found. They said radar was no good. Oh. There's a certain amount of that sort of thing. Mm. Wow. 
Yeah, um, there were there were a number of uh, submarine scares, weren't there, around the country where there people were. spotted mm. them. And mm. I know the um, one of the ferries between North and South Island, someone saw a torpedo go past it at mm -hmm. one stage, and that set off a big hunt. I haven't heard that, but I know torpedoes were, at least the submarines were around. Mm. Yep. I remember hearing on one occasion, I had a um, a relative, his wife came from Invercargill. She wanted to go and visit, visit her people. People on the ship were told, don't get undressed. Be ready to move mm. at a moment's notice. Mm. There were, oh, you know about the Niagara being sunk, mm, mm. minefields being laid across the entrance to the Gulf. And that uh, radar sank several ships. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they never caught up with them either. The Air Force hunted and hunted and never found them. Yes, yeah, I've I read something about it quite recently. and. Uh, just um, narrow misses. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So w w when you were at Fenuapai before you went north, or went, sorry, to Piha, um, what were you doing there? In that six weeks that you were waiting for the Piha base to be set up, did they put you to work or were you just waiting around? No, they, they didn't actually put us to work. Most of them would just hanging around, wasting time. Yeah. I put in quite a bit of time sorting up the instruction book. <coughs> and I, I made one or two things. Uh, do you know the B-17 crash? Mm. That, uh, that, that was while we were there. Oh, right. And I was among the first on the scene after the fire crews. It was still burning. And uh, a lot of bits of perspex were lying all over the place. And fellows were picking up the bits of perspex and making all sorts of ornaments out of them. Like, uh, they'd make a, something like that. And I, I think I've still got some bits somewhere. Really? Mm. Wow. Okay. It's highly prized by wives and girlfriends and mothers. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then the, the Hudson crashed into one of those half-round concrete hangers. Mm. How it came about, I'm not sure. But at that time, <clears throat> I remember particularly at Wigram, uh, that uh, planes that were going to be used for night flying, they would be taken up and the instruments checked. And some of the young POs took that as, as an excuse to beat the place up. And they really did some beat-ups at times. At Wigram, there's a big water tower, and they don't want the water tower, and they'd have to lift one wing to get over it. Yeah. Wow. And these fellas, whether they misjudged the hangar or whether a downdraft got them, they hit the hangar, the engines went through, the wreckage of the body stayed on top. Mm. Oh, and the, right. the repair work is still to be seen. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Seen that, and then the crash of the B-17. That uh, I was out there several times doing 
doing guard duties. Yep. That, I think there's a problem with one engine, the inner port engine. I remember some work being done on it. But the engines had enough power to get it off the runway, clear obstacles at the, uh, at the end of the runway, and then they followed a track downhill. They hit rising ground at the bottom, slid mm. up there, and came to a stop just short of the highway. Yeah. My theory is, it's only my theory, they might have had the artificial horizon wrongly set, mm. and he might have had his eyes glued on that, ignoring the altimeter and the speed, and uh, it yeah. hit crash. Mm. If he'd um, if he'd watched his altimeter, he would have seen they were going down. Yeah, there. Yeah, right at the bottom, it sheared off a Barbary hedge, about this far off the ground, and by that time the propellers, the tips, were making. Um, Barrows in the ground. I've been to the crash site uh, a couple of years ago. They actually, some archaeologists came in and dug it up. Did you know that? About two years ago. Well, there wouldn't have been much less to dig up. No, I don't think there was, but they went and did a dig anyway, and mm -hmm. I went and had a look. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's actually quite far from the... They did get a fair way, didn't they? It wasn't just... Everyone seems to think it was just off the end of the runway, but they got quite yes. reasonable far, yeah. Yes, I yeah. Uh, I spoke to a fella there once, and that's what he thought was just off the end of the mm. runway. Yeah. But no, it had enough power to get up. Mm. If it had been mm. handled properly, they could have kept might going. Have, might have got... Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well... I guess, uh, other than those tragedies, uh, Fenuapai must have been a really busy place at that time, with all the bombers and fighters there. When I was there, <clears throat> they had an EFTS there. Oh, yeah. But um, it should have been, must have been very soon after that, all training was moved to the South Island. Yeah. Mm. And Fenuapai was an operational station. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Woodrum and Tari. Before you switched to aircrew training, did you ever get to go flying in anything? Did they take you up in anything? When we started at the Electric and Wilder School, they gave us a flight at Domery. Oh, right. <laughs> cool. <laughs> just a, I don't know how long it was, 20 or 30 minutes, just experience. Yeah. <laughs> when the, they got the girl operators there, they took some of them up and the pilot going like this with the stick. <laughs> and he was, wasn't very high, you hear them screeching <laughs> from the ground. <laughs> oh, nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yes, I got to fly Dominies when I. My first flying job with the Nelson Aero Club, we had a dominie there. Um. My first flying job was with the Nelson Aero Club, mm -hmm. and we had a dominie there. Mm -hmm. That dominie's still flying, mm -hmm. uh, AKY. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you very much again. It's been thank a pleasure. Thanks. Hope you can make something of that. Thank you very much. Mm. I appreciate the time that you've taken. Thank you. Mm. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.